Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for bringing us together today, and I pray that you would speak to our hearts. We thank you so much that over the past lessons, you've shown us that the Ephesian church was very much like us. They had the same struggles that we do even today. As we go to the text of this letter today, Lord, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts and that you would minister to us in powerful ways that really apply to us in our day-to-day life. Lord, let it all be to the glory of Christ's name. I pray that I'd not get in the way of anything that you plan to do, but that Christ's name would be uplifted and his name would be glorified, his kingdom extended. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Previously, we learned about life in the city of Ephesus and about how God had begun to transform people from their old way of magic and pagan worship by the preaching of the gospel that had come through Paul and his friends. Paul was very fond of his brothers and sisters in Ephesus, and approximately in AD 60, when Paul was arrested and imprisoned in Rome, the church at Ephesus sent someone to visit him, and Paul wrote a letter of encouragement to be taken back to the Ephesians. That letter is now the book of Ephesians that we're studying today. Although this letter was addressed to them, though, it's going to be important that we understand that its contents would have also been shared with other churches in nearby towns. And, of course, because it is the word of God spoken through Paul, this letter is going to have a relevant message for us today also. In verse 1, he begins by saying that the letter comes from Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know a lot of people... They just want to skip over the introduction, wanting to get to the meat of the letter. But this greeting is really worth a closer look. Paul says that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. And really, we discovered last week that that Greek word apostolos meant a sent out one. So in other words, he's a messenger sent out on behalf of Jesus Christ. But this was not something he'd chosen for himself. Rather, it was by the will of God that he'd been called according to this purpose. Paul knew that no matter where he was, he'd been called to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And even there in the prison cell, he preached the word of God to guards who were chained to him. And no matter what his circumstances were, we continually see that Paul is on mission, which included teaching and encouraging the saints in Ephesus and the cities around about it. Now, I know that some of us struggle with this word saint because we've come from a background that taught that saints were super spiritual or they were the specially anointed people of God. And yet this word is used throughout the New Testament as the name for all of us who have 
come to salvation in Christ Jesus, all of us who have believed in him. We all were once on the trash heap of life, but Christ picked us up and he cleansed us. And like them, we are now said to be in Christ Jesus and faithful to God. And Paul greets them with the words grace and peace. And that's no random greeting because in those days, it was customary for Christians from a Gentile background to greet one another with the word grace. And yet those who had come from Jewish families used the traditional Jewish greeting of shalom or peace. So by using both greetings, Paul is really underscoring their unity in Christ, no matter what their background had been. And that's going to be an important theme in this letter as well. All of them had peace with God because of God's grace shown to them in Christ Jesus. Now, another major theme of this letter is all that we have in Christ. So I want you to be sure to circle each time you see the words in Christ, in him or in the beloved, because that too is a reference to Jesus. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. God the Father is to be praised because he's favored us with every spiritual blessing or spiritual benefit in Christ. These Ephesians, if you think about it, had to endure a lot. They'd struggled in the culture of that city and many of them might have been considered the have-nots of their society and yet that didn't alter what God had given them in the heavenly realm. And let me tell you, the same is true of us. Irrespective of our circumstances or the size of our bank accounts, we are rich in the heavenly places in Christ. The amazing thing that Paul tells us in verse 4 is that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. So according to Verse 4, God chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless before him in love. And this has been his plan since before the very foundation of the world. But do you see that he has chosen us in him? So the basis of the father's choice depends on people being in him or being in Christ. We become God's chosen ones by entrusting ourselves to Jesus. And this was always God's intention from the beginning, that the guilty would be reconciled to him by faith in an innocent sacrifice. So if it is in Christ that God the Father accepts us as his children, what then was the hope for all of those in the Old Testament who lived before the cross of Christ? Well, 
Actually, the people of the Old Testament looked forward to Christ's sacrificial death whenever they participated in the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament. According to Hebrews chapter 11, we're told that although they didn't fully understand what lay ahead, they had no way of specifically knowing about what Christ would come to do. Still, they looked in faith to God who would provide the way for them to be saved. Now, an example of this is found in Genesis 22. You'll remember Abraham was asked to sacrifice his one and only son Isaac. Isaac, of course, was unaware of what God had told his father to do. And so on their journey, he repeatedly asked where the sacrifice was. And Abraham continuously replied, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Abraham believed that God would provide, and God did provide. That sacrificial animal that was offered on Isaac's place that day on the mountain pointed forward to Christ, the ultimate sacrifice, who would die in exactly the same place thousands of years later. Abraham believed God and it was his belief that was credited to him as righteousness. In essence, those of the Old Testament looked forward in faith to the cross of Christ, whereas those of us in the New Testament, we look back in faith to the very same cross. But what a privilege we have when compared with them, because we can look back and know the one in whom we have believed. The fact that God would choose those who put their faith in his provision, his Christ, was decided beforehand, which is really the meaning of that word predestined in the text. So do you see, according to verse 5, by his own good pleasure and by the kind intention of his will, God the Father from the very beginning planned to adopt us as his sons because of our faith. And this has all been done to the praise of the glory of God's grace, because it is by Christ's sacrifice that you and I have become accepted in the beloved. Now, perhaps you need to write out that piece of scripture as a reminder that you are indeed accepted in the beloved and maybe put it somewhere like your mirror for example somewhere where you can see it every day so that if you're ever in the mind to criticize yourself or to feel useless you'll be able to go to your mirror and look at your face and look at that scripture and say to yourself I am accepted in the beloved you see God loves you and everything depends on Jesus and on us being in him. I want you to look at verse 5 there. God says that he decided beforehand that in Christ he would adopt us as sons. Now we know that when a person believes in Jesus Christ and entrusts themselves to him they become a child of God. In fact John chapter 1 verse 12 tells us that as many received Christ, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Some people look at Ephesians 1 verse 5 though and they wonder if Paul was only addressing men when he said this. But I want to say don't let that word son put you off because the remarkable thing is that 
we see, according to Scripture, irrespective of our gender, whether we are male or female, we are all considered sons of God. This is what Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 to 28, where he says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. When you look at the text of Galatians 3.27, the word baptized there is not talking about water baptism. Water baptism by immersion is really an outward demonstration of a spiritual baptism that's already taken place. The word baptized in Greek is baptized and it means to dip something into something else. And so this is a reference to us being spiritually dipped into Christ. All of us who have immersed ourselves into Christ have put on Christ. We have been clothed in his robe of righteousness. Any goodness or righteousness we once had in our own strength, that really was all as if they were filthy rags. But now we've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We're considered sons of God, irrespective of our gender, our national, heritage or even our circumstance. Now imagine how powerful this must have been for those who were slaves back then or for the women to hear also to be told that in God's eyes they were sons in his sight with the same rights of inheritance was truly remarkable. The idea of adoption would have spoken very powerfully to them as well because in those days really uh, kindly masters would adopt their slaves from time to time. When someone was adopted, it meant a break with their original family. Their old life was completely erased. The person adopted was released from all the legal debts and obligations of their old life, and they became co-heirs with any natural-born sons of their adopted father, and they were entitled to the same inheritance. Adoption meant a radical change in the life of an individual, and what was very interesting is that the process was always initiated or started by the adopter. And the same is true for us with God because he is the initiator. He starts this process. According to 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we only love him because he first loved us. And in John fifteen sixteen, Jesus explained that in reality, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. God has chosen us in Christ to be his family and we can fully trust in his care because we can call him our daddy. As sons, we are truly free. Galatians 4 confirms that, saying, Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. God has made us his own, not because we did anything to deserve it, but because he's gracious. He's gracious. 
Let's go on in verse 7. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. It is in him, in Christ Jesus, that we have redemption, and it is through his blood. Redemption is the payment of a ransom for something, and so our ransom has been paid by Christ, but it's no ordinary ransom because it has been paid in his own blood. His blood not only purchases us for God, but it also enables us to receive forgiveness for our sins. You see, forgiveness has always required a payment in blood. Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. In the Old Testament, animals were offered and their blood bought temporary forgiveness for the worshipper and it reconciled them to God for a short period of time. But those sacrifices provided no permanent solution to the debt of sin and they had to be offered again and again. However, when Jesus hung bleeding on the cross, he said, it is finished. And the word he used for finished was tetelestē. It was a common expression in those days used by the merchants in the marketplace. Tetelestē was always said when a debt had finally been paid in full. Our redemption has been accomplished. The price has been fully paid. And as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 to 19, it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect. But Let's go back into Ephesians 1, picking it up in verse 7 again. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. Take heart, even Peter said in Second Peter chapter 3 that Paul's letters are sometimes very difficult to understand. But let's look at that broken up. Everything we have is a gift of God's grace. In verse 8, when we are told that he made his grace, his favor abound toward us, some translations say there that he has lavished it on us. In other words, he's exceeded all measure. We have his favor in great abundance. It's hard for us to understand why God would have blessed us so incredibly. But verse 8 also says that he did this in all wisdom and prudence. In other words, he did it in all wisdom and understanding. So God knows exactly who we are and what our hearts are capable of. And yet still he knowingly, intentionally and graciously chose to give us his one and only son, Jesus Christ. Not only that, but he helped us to know and understand this remarkable gift that he has given us in Jesus as we walk with him, he makes known to us the mystery of his will, so that according to verse 10, 
in the fullness of time, at the end of all things, in other words, everything in heaven and earth will be brought together under Christ's authority. Philippians 2 puts it this way, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ's dominion is at one time going to be evident to all, and whether people bow before him in gratitude and adoration, or whether they bow before him in fear as their judge, either way, every knee will bow. But for us who are in Christ, there are blessings even before that final day. In verse 11, Paul speaks of a group of people who first trusted Christ. I think he's referring to himself and others such as Priscilla and Aquila who'd come to trust in Christ before they brought the news of the gospel to Ephesus. So Paul states in verse 11, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. So he speaks of himself and his group of friends who first trusted in Christ. And do you see that he says that in Christ also we have obtained an inheritance. Now what's important there is the word obtained is in the past tense. This inheritance was something that Paul and his friends had already received as believers in Jesus. And we're going to see this throughout the book of Ephesians, that although we do look forward to what will one day be ours when we die and we're with God in heaven, in reality, the abundant life of our inheritance starts even now on this earth because we have obtained past tense an inheritance. Paul goes on to speak to those in Ephesus who had believed in the message of Christ that Paul and his friends had preached, saying in verse 13, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. I know that sounds like a lot, but again, it's all about being in him about trusting Christ. They had to understand that um, as they accepted the good news that Christ's death was able to save them, they had believed in him and they were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance. That word for sealed there in the Greek is phrachidso, and it's an important word for us. God's people are all marked with his seal, his sphrachis, and in Paul's day, a sphrachis or a seal was often a signet ring or something similar. It was a way of marking ownership on something that had been purchased. So for an example, if a wealthy man purchased something in the marketplace, that purchase would then be marked with his seal and it 
the item would be held ready to be collected by the owner or the owner's servants at some future point. But the mark of the seal was proof that the price had been paid in full and that the ownership of the item had already been transferred to the new owner. Now, having believed in Christ, we are marked with God's seal. The promised Holy Spirit is upon us. And verse 14 tells us that the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, Although we have not yet been taken to God's house, even now we belong to him. We are God's possession and it's all to the praise of his glory. And this is proof that we have an inheritance in Christ. Now, I just want to ask you, under normal circumstances, what do you have to do to receive an inheritance? Nothing. To receive an inheritance, the only thing that's necessary is that you have the favor of the one who died. And that's true for all of us in Christ Jesus. We have an inheritance because we have his favor. God purposed that it should be this way from the beginning. He's worked it all out according to his will. Now, I don't know if any of you have been taking notes, but as we look over the text in this lesson, there are several things that stand out as being true of those who are in Christ. Verse 3 states that we've been blessed by the Father with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And verse 4 tells us that we are chosen in Christ to be holy and without blame before him in love. We've been adopted as sons into the household of God, according to verse 5. And you know that as adopted sons, our previous life has been cancelled along with all of our debt. In verse 6, it says that as recipients of his grace, we are accepted in the beloved. So remember God loves you. You're accepted in Christ Jesus. We've been redeemed. We've been bought back by his blood. We haven't been purchased with things such as gold or silver. No, we've been bought with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish. According to verse 7, we've been forgiven. As part of the family, we are now in on our father's secrets and he reveals his mysteries to us, according to verse 9. We've obtained an inheritance, it says in verse 11, and we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, according to verse 13. And verse 14 goes on to say that the Holy Spirit is the one who marks us as God's own purchased possession. We are marked with his seal and the price has been fully paid as we wait for our final redemption. In Christ's name. This is not just for the future. This has actually already begun. This is the abundant life, the superior, the extraordinary, the uncommon life that Jesus promised to us in John chapter 10 verse 10. It begins this side of heaven. So let me encourage us all to take the truths we've learned today to heart and let's ask God to help us start really living in the reality that we are blessed, 
chosen, forgiven, redeemed. We are the children of God who live as sons and not as slaves. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much that you have blessed us. You have chosen us, Lord, for all that we thought we chose you. You have chosen us. We love you because you first loved us. We are forgiven because of the shed blood of Christ, the lamb without spot or blemish. He has purchased us for you. We've been redeemed. And as the children of God, We live as sons, not as slaves any longer. Father, I pray that you would really implant this in each one of us and that we would live our lives out in gratitude for all that you've given to us in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you that we are accepted in the beloved, not because of anything we've done, but because of your great mercy and grace. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.